purposeful positioning, something we've been focusing on for you know the last few weeks since the beginning of the year. It's been a series that we created. Um, we've been looking at specifically the fourth chapter of Philippians. That's going to be where we spend the majority of our time. Sometimes we will simply focus on a verse out of Philippians 4, like is pretty much what we're going to be doing today. Other times we might have more than a few that we look at. But the idea is we're talking about how to position ourselves in purposeful ways that will produce growth and expansion in our life. We're contending for all of us to be on a growing path. And these life principles that are just, you know, all over the fourth chapter are things for us to not just appreciate, I hope, from a distance, but think about implementing in our own hearts. And so as we're thinking about this letter to the Philippians, which serves as the you know, centerpiece of what we've been sharing, we're reminded that when Paul wrote this letter to the church, in the past few weeks we talked about how Paul founded the church of Philippians, where it was located in the Mediterranean world, and we've been spending a little bit of time just talking about some of the characteristics of that church as the letter opened up in that fourth chapter. I'm saying all that to say that when Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, the letter that we're going to be examining, he was actually, as many of you are aware, in Rome at the time. He was uh, under house arrest. And he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. And, you know, he had always dreamed, by the way, of going to Rome. It had been his desire really since his, you know, amazing and radical conversion, which is a story in and of itself, as Paul, Saul of Tarsus, becomes uh, someone who was just completely different than the man he was prior to meeting Jesus. I mean, he had been the chief persecutor of the church, the chief opponent. If you were to ask anybody who was the fiercest opponent of the way of Christ at the, in the early period of the church, after, the, after you know, our Lord's ministry had been completed and the resurrection and, and the church had been started in the book of Acts, you know what? You would have said Saul of Tarsus. And yet this man becomes the most uh, amazing uh, ambassador of the way of Christ. I mean, he, he just, all that, all that passion that he had in opposition to Jesus, all the intellectual capacities and the ability to focus that he had been using to oppose Christ turned it on its head and he began to throw himself into spreading this message wherever he could, particularly to the Gentile world that he was also familiar with. He was a man of two cultures, Jewish culture by, by what he was raised in, trained in at the feet of the predominant and the primary preeminent scholar of their day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Paul had been his greatest student, perhaps, or at least one, an, ex, an exquisite student of Gamaliel. And yet Paul then also has this working knowledge of the Gentile world, uh, familiarity with a lot of the philosophies of the Greeks, Roman, Roman views. And he, he turns all of those energies to this one pursuit of, of taking this message of Jesus into the, the Greco-Roman world. And he does it with a passion. That's how the church at Philippi gets founded. Now, he had always wanted to go to Rome, though, because Rome was, you know, it was like the great city of the greatest empire the world had ever known. And he, he wanted to go. There had been a, an emerging church there that had just started a group of believers. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to talk about Jesus in Rome. It was a value to him. In fact, in your handout, you'll notice, and I'm not going to actually read through these verses, but in verses 13 through 15 of Romans 1, Paul articulates his yearning to go. Uh, He does arrive. Unfortunately for Paul, by the time he gets to Rome, it's not as he thought he would get there. Have we ever gotten to a place in a different way than we thought we would get there? Paul did. He ends up in Rome, but he's not free. He's not able to go wherever he wants to and talk about Jesus in the courts and in the public squares. He can't go 
freely anywhere, actually. He's confined. He's under arrest. He's awaiting a trial. We know this, that he was essentially unsure of what his future would be. There was a real possibility that he could be acquitted. But there was also the possibility that he would be beheaded. Both of those possibilities existed at the time of Paul's writing of this letter to the church of Philippians, um, at Philippi, I should say. And so Paul is under confinement. He is uh, under house arrest. We know from Acts 28 that one of the things that Rome had him do was uh, he had to pay his own rent. And that's interesting. It, they're very clever, actually, if you think about it. Here the, he is under arrest, and it, he's told that he has to pay his own bills as well. So they're having him finance his own confinement. And it's interesting because Paul, at this point, has no money, I mean, uh, to sustain himself. You know, one of the things we know about Paul is that he had a, an additional talent or skill. He was, not only was he a scholar and well-learned and high, we would say highly educated, but he also was someone who had a skill set as a tent maker. And frequently when he would go to places and stay for an extended period of time, he would make extra income by utilizing that skill in terms of making tents. And um, it was something that he actually somewhat prided himself on because he never really was dependent on the people he was bringing the message of Christ to. And so he, they could never accuse him of being in it for anything other than his heart's desire to see the message of Christ shared with them. But now, at this point in his life, in around AD 62, he's under house arrest in Rome, and he's, he's kind of stuck. He doesn't, have any, he doesn't have the resource to keep paying the bills. He can have visitors. Uh, he can have some degree of limited freedom. I mean, a Roman, Roman guard must accompany him. He can entertain guests. He can write letters, but he, he can't move about freely. He has to pay his bills. And you know what? For the first time, maybe in a long time, he needs help. He needs resource. At that point, we know that some of the churches that he had planted and certain of the people who had been impacted by his ministry felt compelled to respond to his situation. One of the churches, perhaps the one that responded the, the best, was the church at Philippi. And they made a decision out of their own volition that in the situation he was in, they were going to respond. And they raised funds to help Paul out. And those funds were given to a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was the messenger responsible for taking that money and bringing it to Paul. And he's mentioned there in the letter itself. Now, Paul's response, first off, he's just extraordinarily grateful, as you and I would be if we were in a situation and someone found out about it and they, they sent us a blessing of money that we, we needed but we weren't asking for. And in, in this situation, Paul is just amazed at the depth of their love and loyalty. And so in many ways, the letter that he writes to, to the church at Philippi, this Philippian letter, this epistle, this book of the New Testament, is in many ways a thank you letter, a letter in which he expresses his absolute joy um, that he has because of their amazing gra gratefulness and the evidence of their love. And he reminds them that they are a joyful people, that he just thinks so highly of them. And he talks with them about just what it means to have the joyful life in Christ. And he himself, interestingly enough, makes that appeal. Perhaps it's best summed up by that fourth verse of Philippians 4, in which it says this. I'll just put this up real quick, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I tell you, just keep on rejoicing. Let joy, as we talked about last week, just be such a part of who you are as a people. For Paul, interestingly enough, here is the man in confinement who has every reason in the world not to be joyful, reminding the others uh, who are free 
that they need to remember that they are a people born to be in the joy of the Lord. And it's just a, it's kind of really impressive because you would think that if Paul ever had an excuse to feel sorry for himself, it would have been now. And yet, and yet the fact is that Paul has a, a joy that is real, a love for God, a life in God that is able to soar above his confinement. And, you know, again, it was, his joy was connected to, as we'll see in the coming weeks, a mindset. That mindset was connected to a way of thinking, which was an attitude. And so much of what he's going to talk about has to do with having the proper attitude in the midst of our adversity in life. Or when we're in the middle of a confining place, the attitude and the way we think is huge in terms of impacting our situation. In other words, if I can summarize it like this, our outlook, Paul would say, impacts our outcome. Outlook impacts outcome. Outlook impacts outcome. How we choose to engage something, how our mind is set. In fact, he often will talk about things like, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, Paul talks a lot about thinking. Now, I said all that to get us to here. Let's look at the fifth verse, because on the heels of his appeal for them to be joyful, he makes these two statements in verse number five. I want us to look at it, sit with it, connect with it. Paul goes on to say this. He says, not only do I want you to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I tell you, please rejoice. Let the joy of Christ fill your life. But also, he says, I would have your gentleness to be known to all men. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. That's what we would say. For the Lord is at hand. Now the gentleness, that's a phrase. I mean, we read that phrase. What does it mean? What is he saying? Let your gentleness be made known to all. I mean, what is that? What are we talking about here? Other versions translate it as moderation. Let your moderation be known. Some say it, forbearance, goodwill, fairness, magnanimity, consideration. I mean, we can look at it in a lot of different ways. When we say this word, now stay with me here, because maybe the best way to do it is to kind of illustrate it in, in a certain way, that when we talk about gentleness, we're not talking about something that's really weak. We're talking about a choice, a chosen response, a way of positioning ourselves. It actually is connected to the idea of not fighting for our rights. It's this idea of yielding when we have the right to something, but we yield it. We, we choose not to insist upon our own way or insist that it be done a precise way, but there's a certain graciousness to the way we approach something, a willingness maybe to not insist upon our privilege, our guard, our turf. But again, it's something that Paul is contending for. He's saying, be this type of a person. Now, perhaps some of us uh, may have experienced this in different ways. When I was thinking about how could I illustrate it. Say, say we're at a, uh, at a, um, we're going to a coffee house, right? It could, be, it could be a shopping, any type of a shopping place, but I'll pick a coffee house for the sake of it. We come in, and, and there's a line. Everybody kind of knows where the line is, and there's a number of people there. And we're kind of walking into the line, you know, to go to the back of the line, just wait our turn. And then, but around the same time where we're getting there, an, another person is also coming. They're coming from a slightly different direction. We're kind of arriving at the same time, and then we both kind of look at each other, and a decision has to be made. Who's, who's going to get to go to the spot, Right? And we might go, hey, you know what? Hey, don't, don't worry about it. Just go ahead. You, you go ahead me. It's not a big deal. And, and that's, we yield. That's a very simple, but, you know, I guess it's more challenging when the person is clearly um, trying to cut us. <laughs> and they jump in. And it's like, hey, 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 wait a second. The line's back here, buddy. Back here. We, that, that, that's another kind of decision we have to make. Am I going to yield? Am I going to be gentle in this moment? Right? The idea of giving someone the right of way. Yielding to that. 
Or are we going to fiercely kind of uphold our spot? Now, that's a simple way of describing it, but it does kind of make sense for us. Now, one of the things I love is that Jesus has these interactions with the disciples and sort of models this principle. It's this idea, what Paul appeals to, he's saying, look, I want you to be a people who are, are willing to yield, are willing to accommodate, willing to, to overlook something, not so reactive that, it, that, that this is a key for your joy in your life, that this is what it needs to be part of who you are as a person, this kind of level of great graciousness and gentleness, this kind of gentleness. Let it be a characteristic of who you are. Jesus modeled it. And there's these two incidents that I was thinking about that actually show a contrast between the way of Jesus, which is the way we should go, and the way of some of the disciples, which is in this particular case that we're going to look at, the opposite of what it means to have a, a, a gentle spirit. And so look with me if you can firstly. The first example is found in Mark 9, verses 38 through 40. And this is in your hand, and I want to look at it real quick. Uh, both of them, interestingly enough, involve John. John, who ultimately will be known as the apostle who is the apostle of love, that he writes about the love of God. It becomes a characteristic of who he is. But early on in his life, we see that John was anything but a loving man. He seemed to have a fierce temper. He and his brother James are revealed as um, men who got angry and got angry quick. And actually, they were, nick they were given a nickname early on called the Sons of Thunder. And nicknames are usually given for a reason, all right? And these guys were quick to get angry at times. Now, look here with me. It says here that John said to Jesus, teacher, here's one example. We saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop. And here's why we told him to stop. Because he wasn't in our group. And I love that. Because it's like, you, you know, I mean, we saw him doing some good stuff out there. And he was doing it in your name. But you know what? He wasn't really authorized to do it. And we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. See, John has a very parochial, very narrow scope of who's included in the group. Jesus says to him, don't stop him. Jesus said, no one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against, John, John, anyone who is not against us is, is for us. Don't be so narrow in the way in which you safeguard your turf. Have a broader perspective. Have an expansive outlook. And then the second example, look at it right on the heels of this. There's another time. It says, at the time drew near for him, Jesus, to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out to, for Jerusalem. The older version says, he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem when they found. Now, to appreciate what we just read there, we have to understand that there was this tremendous tension that existed between Jews and Samaritans. Okay, the disciples are not unlike you and I. They had, they were affected by their culture. They were people shaped as all of us are by the generation we grow up in. Every generation has characteristics and tendencies and points of, uh, of, of cultural impact that make us uniquely who we are, that separate us from generations of the past and generations to come. But for the most part, they, we can still relate to a lot of what the disciples uh, were experiencing because in James and John's situation, in the disciples' situation, there was a lot of tension that still existed from religious and social uh, reasons predominantly uh, between Jews and Samaritans, but they were also, there was also an ethnic component to it. So there was a racial aspect to this. Jews and, and Samaritans didn't get along. They had differences of opinions different cultural values. There were strong histories of tension between the two cultures. Even though they were somewhat related, they were very distinct. 
And there was always a backdrop in the teaching of Jesus. This is kind of lingering there. Samaria, interestingly enough, is located. You have Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and then you have Judea underneath in the south. And oftentimes people would have to go from the north through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, Judea. But many times people would go a long route just to avoid going, through, going back and forth. They would take the longer route so they didn't have to pass through Samaria. There's a kind of tension there. Jesus is, and they, and by the way, like a lot of prejudice, it went both ways. And so the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Samaritans felt judged. Jews felt like, you know, that they were, they were creating something of a, of a, a per, you know, perversion of what the true way of Abraham was. And so there's this t- tension there already. And it, we're told, though, that Jesus decided he's going to go through Samaria, and he intended to go to a particular Samaritan village. But when that village found out that Jesus was actually heading to Jerusalem, it, it pulled up some different feelings in them. And, and they basically said, you know what? You are, a, you are not welcome here. And that provoked a response when they said, you know what, you're not welcome here. And look what it says James and John did. It says, when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, and this is said with all seriousness, Lord, should we, like, like the Old Testament prophets of old, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them all up? Like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> we know you have power. They have offended us. Who are they? Teach them a lesson. It's time. Call down the fire. <laughs> and now I'm looking at them and going, are these guys serious? And you know what? They are serious. Because they're mad. They're offended. They've been rejected. You've insulted us. You've insulted, you've insulted Jesus. Jesus, this is the time. Take care of it right now. <laughs> and there's, there's this moment, right? And you know what? Jesus did get mad. He was angered. But his anger was not directed at the Samaritans. He turned it, and he turned it on, on James and on John. Look what it says here. It says that in this moment, he turns and he rebukes them. And he says, what, what manner of spirit is on you? What, are you? what are you doing? What are you talking about? His anger, it's real anger, but Jesus turns to them and he rebukes them. Do you not understand that this is everything that you are saying right now is contrary to everything that I am, have come to do? I am on my way to Jerusalem to give my life away. I'm going to give my life away so that others may live. And now you, in your spirit of anger and offense, want me to use this power to hurt and kill and destroy, call down fire. From, the spirit that is on you is not my spirit. That's not what I'm about. That is the complete opposite of what I've come to do. I have come to save life, not destroy it. What, what is wrong with you? That's what he's saying. What, it, what kind? You know what? We may not call down fire from heaven, <laughs> but we can get mad. We can get mad at people. And when some of us get mad at people, it's easier for us to get mad at people we, we don't really know. And they do something, they offend us, they step in front of us, they do say, say something, don't acknowledge. Or it might have, some of us are okay with that. What we have a harder time with is in our own world of relational proximity. And we've got tripwires. Or we take offense over something, we're quick to get angry. Some of us, that anger shows up like James and John. It's a fierce anger, it's got a temper side to it. it, it the wire gets tripped, the word is said, the offense is taken. Now I want fire from heaven fire back at you. 
You hurt me, I hurt you back. You took my spot, no one's taking my place. It's about justice. See, that's what it was about. But others of us, we don't get angry that way. But we stuff it down right in here. And we hold that anger inside of us. And it passively bubbles like a slow boil inside. And it doesn't get expressed right away, but it's there. It is, it's there. And you know what Jesus said? What manner of spirit is that? It's not my way. That is not my way. Neither one of us, not my way. I go back, I say, Jesus says, look, that is not me. What are you, what are you doing? I, there are times where I felt like the Lord said to me, what? Like, I'm like, like, I'm James and John. Like, you know, Lord, take care. And Jesus said, what are you, what are you doing? What kind of spirit is that? Where did that come from? That, I, didn't, I didn't teach you to do that. That's not me. What is that? Where is that coming from? I don't recognize that. Yeah, I'm mad, but I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you. Because of that, that attitude. Retaliate. Get my way. Pay them back. Protect my turf. That's not... See, gentleness is the opposite. You know what Jesus does? He shows us what gentleness looks like. What does it say he did? Can you just look at that verse one more time. Look at the very end of it. After he got finished with James and John. We're, you, okay. Now, you know what? We're going to another village. Come on. All right? It says they went to another village. It's like... We're not going to have a big fight about this. I'm not, I'm not interested in a bunch of conflict right now. Forget that. They offended us. So what? Let it be. My zeal Maybe you're zealous, but Lord, we were only doing it for you. They shouldn't do that to you. They don't know who you are. I can, you know what? Maybe. Maybe it's because you were mad. Maybe because it pushed some buttons that you have. Because there again, Jesus is saying, you know what? Let's just go to, stop. Let's just go <laughs> to another village. It's fine. Sometimes we need to do that. Now, that leads me to sort of think this next part of the verse, because not only does it say, go back if we can to Philippians 4. So the concept there, let your gentleness be known to all men. Jesus shows us really how to de-escalate, right? He shows us what not reacting looks like. And maybe some of us right now, we're going to be facing things on Monday that the temptation will be very real for us to react. Um, and we will, it will be very real temptation to, to respond in like kind, to protect ourselves. To, to, to be on the alert, on the alert for being taken advantage of. Now, we, we understand this next phrase, which I think is, is closely connected to the ability to live a, in, a, in, a, in a gentle, Christ-directed way. Look at, it, look at the phrase. It says this, let your gentleness be made known to all, to all men. That's an inclusive term. And then it says this, the Lord is at hand. Now, this phrase, what, I don't know, what is that phrase? The Lord is at hand. It's, I, it's like, what does that mean? You know, the Lord is at hand. Why would Paul throw that in there? What does it even mean, the Lord is at hand? I mean, we use it for, now, you know what something is at hand? When the Bible, you'll read that, by the way. There will be times in the Gospels where it will say something like this. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What, what does that mean? When something is at hand, it means it's right there. It's right, so every time you read that, at hand, it's right here. It's near me. It's right in front of me. It's now. The kingdom is now. It is right here. It is at hand. And if something is at hand, it's right there. And Paul is saying, look, the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near to your life. Now, in one sense, it, the, the early church understood that as a reference to the second coming of Jesus, that he would be soon returning. And they lived in that reality. But another way of interpreting this verse and the way that I like for us to see it 
is that the Lord is saying to us, look, live in a way that is gentle and gracious. And remember, the Lord wants to be near to your life. He is near to you even now. And there is something about the nearness of God, God's desire to live close to us in Christ Jesus, that he wants to be both our Lord and Savior and our friend. We talked about it. We sang about it. The song that preceded the sharing time had to do with the idea that the Lord is with us even when we fail, that he's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus said to his disciples, look, I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end that I, am, I will be to you a very present help in time of trouble. That even in the questioning place, in the doubting place, in the shadow place, in the place where you want to quit and give up, I am there. In the place of shame, when we have blown it, and blown it worse than we ever thought we could blow it, he still is there. You hear me? And he want, you know what this is a reminder of? The Lord wants to be near. The Lord is near. What Paul is saying is, remember this, the Lord is near to you, Always. He wants to be in relationship with you. Think about this. The image that we're given in Revelation 3 is Jesus says, stands at the door. I stand at the door and I knock. And I wait for you to welcome me in. What kind of, what kind of, can he just like, you know, won't, he can do whatever he wants. He's Jesus. Just push open the door. Go wherever you want. He says, I won't go where I'm not welcomed. I wait, I wait to be wanted. That is true humility. That is true gentleness. Now, let me just kind of summarize it by putting it this way. So I'm going, to, I'm going to take what we've just shared, and I'm going to drop it down to two principles. We'll call these two principles that would enhance our ability to live purposefully. And basically, they're just essentially uh, almost a summary of what we've just shared. Number one is this, and there's just two of them. And I just want to put them up on the board real quick. As a follower of Jesus, when it comes to purposefully positioning our lives, that one of the things we need to remember we need to make a commitment to gentleness and graciousness as a way of life. That means we need to let the Lord challenge us around this. Some of us are better at this than others. Um, you know, I, I, I personally at times find myself more identifying with James and John when I'm really offended. That tendency to want to retaliate, to protect myself, to, to, to take care of what is just. I mean, it's not right. I'm not, and I get it. Listen, I also know this. There are times where the most love, and you hear me say this a lot, because it's biblical, it's true, that sometimes the most loving thing we can ever do is, is stand up. Sometimes the most right thing we can ever do is say, this is wrong, it can't continue, and I can't live a lie. I can't do that. We're never going to get better as long as we keep pretending there's nothing wrong. That the first step to getting better is acknowledging we've got an issue. And until we do that, until we do that, we can't move really move forward ever. There are some times where things are so clearly out of alignment, so clearly wrong, they need to be addressed. We have to stand up. We, we, turning their cheek is not the answer. But, you know, it's the same thing that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, struggled with um, when he, when the, with the rise of the, the Nazis in, in Hitler's Germany. It, he was a, essentially a, a lean to keeping himself out of anything political and was, had pacifistic tendencies. At, by the end of this thing, Bonhoeffer has to make a decision if he's going to choose to be part of some type of an assassination attempt on Hitler. And it, he, ends up, he ends up being killed. Um, but the, the point being is he had to wrestle with the idea of when is it appropriate to stand up to something that is clearly wrong? And is, it, is, it, is there a point where something it, it becomes worse to not do something than to simply let it be? Having said that, and I do need to put this on the side for a moment, there is also truth that there are some times where the Lord really does want to teach us to let something go and to not fixate on the justice issue. That is my right. I'm being mistreated. It's my spot. 
Um, you see what I'm saying? They, they must pay for that. That's wrong. That's wrong. I, I call down fire on this, right? And the Lord is saying, don't do that. Go to another village, okay? So don't do that. Some of us retaliate. We're gonna, you hurt me, I hurt you back. You hurt me, I'm gonna hurt you back. You said that, I'm gonna say it back. I know where your weak spot, I'll hurt you back. I wanna fight you to the end. It's my chair, it's my right. See, this is the thing, he's getting at it. Paul's getting at it, he's, it's the same way of Christ. He's saying, remember, that is not my way. And it's good for us, this is good, good medicine, and it will bring life down the generations in our lives. It'll improve our relationships. It'll not only release the joy of the Lord in our own life, but it'll affect other people. We'll be better. We will be better people. We will have better impact, and, and the love around us will grow if we honor the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is the right way. It is the gentle way. Not the weak way, but the right way. It's a way that says it may not always mean that I have to insist upon my right. I may not have to get my way. Whoa. I may even need to turn another cheek. That's high altitude zone, by the way. That's high. That's, that's, that's terrain. Hard to get to, way up on the peak. Jesus walked there a lot. You see what I'm saying? So, then, and then secondly, connected to that, and I do think it's connected. Not only does God want us, wants us to grow as, as a gracious and gentle people, but I think the Lord wants to remind us to, to make a decision to keep him near to our hearts. And listen to me on that. We'll, we'll kind of leave, we'll end with this. That he wants us to have a determination to keep him close to our hearts. You might say, well, I know that. No, no, listen. Listen. He wants us to keep him at hand. You see what I'm saying? He's near to us. He wants us to cultivate that relationship. Because you see, our ability to live the life is connected to this. The joy is connected to this. The ability to live in a way that is gentle and gracious is connected to this. The way to get past our past is connected to this. The way to grow in our ability to turn from a son of thunder to an apostle of love, that happens in a man's life. How did that happen? It happens because of the reality of a relationship with Christ that was growing and emerging. God has things he wants to, listen, work into us and some things he wants to work out of us. And he wants us to be open. And I, I love that. In fact, when we, when we end up closing the service, what we're going to do is we're going to share this song. It's called Captivate Us, which I think is an interesting phrase. Because part of the song, and again, the words are small there, so some of us may have to squint a little bit. But the idea is here, captivate us, Lord Jesus. Set our eyes on you. And then this phrase, devastate us with your presence falling down. Rushing river draw us nearer. And then it goes on to say this. There's that last stanza, the very last one. Look at it. It says, and let everything be lost in the shadows of the light of your face. And this phrase, this is what stuck, stuck with me in the context of what we've been sharing. And let every chain be broken from me as I'm bound in your grace. For your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You're full of wisdom, power, and might. This idea of, of Lord, you captivate us. Some of us may find ourselves in captivity. Paul was in captivity. He wasn't free but he was free because he had been captive. He, he says, because I've been made captive by Christ and every chain has been broken. Physically, I'm not free, but my spirit is free. I live in his joy. And let me encourage you, he says to his friends in Philippi, to live that way too. Let's pray. 
Lord, I wanna, we wanna, as we, as we, it's just, you know, we've sat with your word. We, we've, we've tried to engage it, and we've tried to really connect to it, Lord. And, um, you know, I, I believe that it's always your plan for us to take the things that we've heard and try to challenge our own heart. At the end of the day, we get to decide how serious we're going to be with our own life with you. I want to ask you, Lord, to just uh, let these words settle into our heart. And as we close the service, that, that song becomes for us kind of a prayer. I, I, I think that we could all enter into it as a closing prayer for our own lives. So we invite you, Lord, the one who has the gentle hand, but who has the power to deliver, the one who sets free, the one who shows us the way, the one who reminds us what true greatness really is. I pray that we would be mesmerized and captivated and at even times devastated by the grace of God at work in our lives. Break the chains that bind us. Free us from the places that would keep us from moving forward. Keep working in our lives, gracious Lord. And I ask that you would just be with us in these closing minutes. Bless our time of giving. Let this song again be the prayer that we end with. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen, God. Amen. Amen.